We're going to continue our service, though, at this point. As you can see, we have a scripture reading coming, coming up. Uh, while we've been preaching out of the New Testament, out of Galatians, we are reading out of the Old Testament in the book of Jeremiah, uh, chapter 33 this morning. Daryl is going to come and read it for us. You can follow along as he reads in the bulletin. Jeremiah 33:14-22. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch to spring up for David, and he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved, and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called, the Lord is our righteousness. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel, and the Levitical priests shall never lack a man in my presence to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to make sacrifices forever. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant with the day and my covenant with the night, so that day and night will not come at their appointed time, then also my covenant with David, my servant, may be broken, so that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne, and my covenant with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, so I will multiply the offspring of David, my servant, and the Levitical priests who minister to me. We are in a sermon series in the book of Galatians. Uh, we've been working through it this fall, and Paul is defending the gospel, defending uh, the message of Christ against sort of intrusions and attacks from what he calls the Judaizers, these people who want to return to this form of biblical legalism, uh, as we'll be talking about today. We're kind of getting towards a more practical uh, section as he's talking about, well, what does this look like in practice? How do we live these things out? This, this, uh, this, passage uh, 5, 1 to 15 is a bit of a bridge between sections, uh, as you'll see. But before we get into it, we are going to read it together. Uh, Tyler is going to come and read it for us. You can follow along on the back middle panel of your bulletin. Tyler. Galatians 5. For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves, for you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another.
All right, we're going to spend some time reflecting on this text together. Uh, For many children, Halloween's one of the best days of the year, as you can recently attest. On nearly every other day, children are regulated as to how much candy they can eat. And if you are a parent of a school-aged child, you probably find yourself saying things like, well, choose one, or just a handful, or let's make sure we share with everyone. These are the things we normally say to our children, but on Halloween, everything is different. For one magical night, you know, all the normal rules have gone out the window, and for many families, you know, kids sort of eat as much as they like. Now, what's the normal consequence of eating candy without any limits? It's usually a stomach ache. Usually it's, I don't feel well at the end of the evening. It turns out when left to our own devices, when we can do as much as we want, we don't treat freedom that wisely. As we get older, we're supposed to get wiser. We're supposed to realize I should regulate my candy intake. Maybe I shouldn't eat 41 mini arrow bars, you know, back to back. Even though it seems like a good idea at the time, we should use our freedom wisely. At this point in Galatians, after multiple chapters of the Apostle Paul sort of hammering away on the free gift of the gospel, we've reached this kind of natural consequence, a natural endpoint of that way of thinking and arguing. And it goes like this. If the gospel is free, if it's really, really free, if Jesus has saved us and salvation is a gracious gift from him, then couldn't I do whatever we want, all right, whatever I want? Can't we live any way we please, trusting that there's enough forgiveness, enough love in Jesus anyways? As Mel Gibson, Braveheart, once said, I'm not going to do the accent, what will you do with your freedom? You have your freedom. Jesus gave it to you in the gospel if you're a Christian. What are you going to do with it? I think once a lot of us begin to grasp the radical nature of salvation in Jesus, we are shocked by the amount of freedom we have. And maybe you've wondered to yourself, couldn't I, live any way though, any, couldn't I live any way I like and have Jesus forgive me? If you've wondered that, it's actually a good sign. You've begun to understand the true nature of the gospel, but there is more to be said. And in this section, Paul begins to unpack how the gospel teaches us to live and behave. Though he's still sort of fighting off attacks from the Judaizers, as we'll see, but things like freedom and love and faith and patience These are the characteristics that should mark a person who has the freedom, who lives by the freedom that the gospel brings. So I want to take this text in four sections. This helps you to follow along. We'll talk about freedom and its fragility. He kind of gives like this little thesis up top. Then there's a test of freedom, circumcision. The opponents of freedom, all this talk about what's going on with these people who are opposing opposing them. And then part four, we'll kind of end with the evidence of freedom. But if you look at verse 1, Paul begins, For freedom, Christ has set us free. Now in Greek, it's a lot more fun than it is in English uh, because Paul uses the same root word for both the noun and the verb. So freedom and, and having been set free, that's like the same root. Greek, word, Greek nerds love that stuff. And so Paul wants to clearly emphasize that what Christ did and what Christ gives, they're like the same thing or they're quite similar to each other. Now what does Paul mean by this statement? Well, it clearly implies, first of all, that our former state was enslavement. If we were set free, then there must have been a previous state in which we were not free. You must have been imprisoned. You must have been enslaved, something like that, beforehand. And then Christ came along, set his people free. They did not tunnel their way out. They were not Andy Dufresne, you know. They did not escape slavery through hard work and paying down their debts. Jesus came, broke the chains that bound them, and set them free. To what end? That they might live as free people. They might embrace their newfound freedom and live by it. 
If you could imagine a slave on a cotton plantation, you know, a few hundred years ago, no hope of freedom, no chance of escape. But then one day someone comes along and purchases them and sets them free and tells them, you can go, you can go do whatever you like. To what end? Not so they can turn around and trudge back to the plantation and be like, look, I'm just back. I'm going to kind of start over. No, no, they're, they're, they're purchased and set free so they can have a new life, a different life, a life of their own choosing. That is the point of being released. And in the same way, Paul is asserting the point of Christ's work is to achieve a kind of freedom for, for Christians, not vocational, uh, you know, physical slavery, spiritual slavery. He's saying the law can no longer demand things of Christians in return for salvation. The law has no whip, no club. Now, Christians, of course, if you're a Christian, you, you would know this. You're not free in every way. Your body, still marred by sin. Your will, not perfect. Uh, our, our minds and hearts, evil desires sometimes. But we are fundamentally free from the law's demands as they pertain to salvation. This is what Christ did. For freedom, you have been set free. And then Paul continues, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. This is the fragility I mentioned. Christians are the most curious kinds of ex-slaves because there is a part of them that longs to return to the slavery they once lived in. And that former slavery is somehow so attractive that Paul says, you got to stand firm against returning. And the language actually is pretty communal, corporate. It's something we do together. We together are vigilant. We together hold fast so that, so that some of us do not go back to the way we once lived. And Paul likens returning to slavery like putting on a yoke. Now you probably know what a yoke is. It's what oxen wear to pull a plow. You understand that part. But because Galatians is, is pretty removed from our cultural moment, we don't realize what Paul is referring to. In that time, those who decided to obey the law of Moses uh, as a means to salvation, they referred to it as going under the yoke. So if someone's not a Jew and they want to become a Jew, it was said, well, they went under the yoke. They put the yoke on. So what Paul is doing, he's using their own phrase against them. He's telling the Galatians, you aren't going under just any old yoke, just a random yoke. You aren't putting on the yoke of Moses. You are putting on a yoke of slavery, that yoke is not what you think it is. Now, again, Halloween reference here, ready? Do you know those jelly belly jelly beans? You know, those little beans, they, or those, uh, they come in uh, these little bags. They have mostly good flavors, strawberry, banana, you know, whatever your favorite is. Did you know, fun fact, Jelly Belly also makes certain bags of jelly beans that they call bean boozled. Yeah, you can go order them on Amazon. But in these bags are jelly beans that look like regular jelly beans, but they actually taste like, and these are real flavors, smelly socks, skunk, and, and a whole bunch of other terrible things. So, you know, kids, you know, file that away for, for later for a, a trick. But Paul is telling the Galatians, you think you are choosing another jelly bean, another yoke. You're actually being bamboozled. The yoke you are putting on is going to enslave you. That yoke of Moses, you're like, oh, it looks tasty in the dish. When you eat it, it stinks. It's not what you think it's going to be. It's going to enslave you. It's going to put you back where you don't want to be. In 1 Corinthians, Paul, uh, the Apostle Paul warns that church against things that are lawful for the Christian, so like allowable, but not helpful. And he goes on to say, there's a whole bunch of things that are allowable for Christians, but they can end up dominating you or mastering you, that where you start is not where you end up. Now, I'm not sure how many of us are in danger of becoming biblical legalists. Maybe some of us are tempted that way. But I think a lot of us understand there are lawful things 
that can easily become too important in our lives, that can dominate us if we aren't careful. If you are a Christian, you were made free and should live free and avoid everything that would subvert that freedom. This is what Paul is saying. It's more, the freedom is more fragile than you think. But that leads us to part two, a test of freedom. I know we only got down one verse. We'll move quicker here. Verse two begins a discussion on circumcision as it relates to freedom. He begins by saying, if one accepts circumcision, Christ is of no advantage to that person. Now let me be clear here. Paul is not talking about circumcision as a a medical or health-related procedure. It sometimes is in our culture. He's not talking about it as a ceremonial right, a cultural right. It's sometimes that in our culture. He is speaking about when circumcision becomes a theological symbol, when it becomes representative for the type of religion one belongs to and believes in. For instance, as a helpful cross-reference, Acts 15, there's a group of teachers in the young Christian church, and they had begun to teach, and it's in quotes, unless one is circumcised according to the law of Moses, one cannot be saved. So the false teachers in the church, they explicitly tie circumcision to Christian salvation. You have to have it if you want to be a Christian. So it's not a hypothetical example. But it was being lived out all over, really all over the Roman Empire as Christianity is growing and being established and some Jews convert to Christianity. They're wrestling with the role of the law. And for these Judaizers, they're saying, you have to add circumcision to the work of Christ. Moses finishes what Jesus began. That was one of their slogans. A person proved their beliefs by submitting to circumcision or not. It was the distinguishing mark of when a male goes under the yoke of the law. And so Paul repeats what he's taught all throughout Galatians. This won't sound weird to you if you've been around. If you choose to keep part of the law as a means to salvation, you will inevitably be forced to keep all of it. We might say it this way. If you add to Christ, if you add circumcision to Christ, then you subtract Christ. If Christ is not enough on his own, then you may as well not have any part of Christ. And if you look at verse 4, Paul says there, accepting circumcision severs a person from Christ. It cuts the tie that binds them to Jesus. Now, it sounds like in verse 4 that one can be a Christian and believe the gospel and then later on come to disbelieve the gospel and fall away from grace. Now, that presents a problem because Reformed churches like ours have held well, no, everyone who believes in Jesus or everyone whom God chooses, God elects. We sometimes use that language. Everyone whom God elects endures to the end. So we would say, oh, it's not possible to believe truly and then later on not believe. So what do we do with verses like this? And we believe, by the way, that that doctrine of election, that doctrine of God choosing is taught many places in the Bible. And yet lots of us know people who at one point really, really seem to believe and then later on came to repudiate their faith. So what's going on? How do we understand this? I'll give you my best explanation. You may not like it, but I'll give it to you anyways. We would say, and actually I think it's supported by verse 4, a person who leaves Christ behind for biblical legalism or any other kind of religion, we would say, well, they were never truly joined to Christ in the first place. Now, it sounds harsh. I'm not trying to denigrate your faith, anyone else's faith or experience, but it's one way to kind of reconcile that the election, the choosing of God, and the choices of people that we see in real time And I think what Paul is saying here is that if you decide to be justified through the law, if you go back to circumcision, then you are not joined to Christ. You are backing away from grace. You're cutting yourself off from Jesus. Now, if you've gotten sort of lost on that little little side trail, here is the test of circumcision in plain English. Are you trying to take salvation into your own hands? 
Or are you willing to wait in faith for what the scriptures promise? That's what Paul sets up as the opposite of circumcision in verse 5 and 6. In contrast to those who seek salvation through law obedience, Paul says, no, no, on the other hand, Christians are known for their eager and expectant waiting. Their great trust, their great hope is not in working for their salvation, but in God delivering it to them. So again, I would just simply ask you, what will you do with your freedom? Paul says a person freed by Christ will spend their time in hopeful waiting. But you can't have Christ and accept circumcision as necessary to salvation. If you add anything to Christ, you subtract Christ. Part three, the opponents of freedom. If you look at verse seven, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? Now, Paul faces something head-on here that he's been hinting at for a while, that there are real humans, at least one, probably a number of them, intent on converting the Galatian Christians away from the freedom of the gospel. And I use that language of conversion quite intentionally because Paul is not writing about an interdenominational skirmish. This is not about Presbyterians leaving for the Baptist church or the United leaving for the president, you know, anything like that. This is about Christians leaving Christ and the gospel behind for a different religion. And Paul offers us a picture. He says, and I'm taking a little bit of artistic liberty here, but I'll get back to a second. But he says, think of a cross-country runner. You know, their shorts on, got one of those like running tank tops on, and their, their shoes are, are carefully double-knotted, and, and, and the, the starting gun has gone off, and they're, and they're running well. They're going uh, through trees and uphills and downhills and around corners, and they're just, they're just churning along. Steady progress. Their pace is strong. Their coach is you know, nodding approvingly from the side. But what has happened is that something has gone wrong in the race. Someone who looks like a runner and acts like a runner has cut in front of the lead pack and instead of following the race course, you know, as it, as it winds through the forest or whatever, the imposter has led all of the runners down a side trail. Someone cut in on the race. That's a, that's a language Paul is using. And he is hindering the runners from completing the course. He is leading them down a side trail. That's what's happening in these Galatian churches. They were on their way. They were running along. Someone cut in on them and is hindering them. Paul says at the end of verse 7, the Galatians are no longer obeying the truth. This is how we know we're talking about a different religion, a different covenant, a different way of approaching God. Now, what do we learn about these opponents and the way they operate here? I got five really quick things that Paul says about how we recognize them and what they're up to. First, these opponents are persuasive. Look at verse 8. This persuasion is not from him who calls you. So Paul is partially saying these, what these teachers are saying, not from God. But let's not overlook the fact that false teaching rarely shows up in unappealing ways. He says it's a persuasion. It's going to look good. It's going to sound good. It's going to appeal to something in you. With biblical legalism, the appeal is normally to our pride. We get to come to God on our own strength. We did something. We contributed our own merit, our own effort. We feel that sort of joy of like, it was me. I I did it. I helped. Biblical legalism offers this concrete and straightforward path. Do these things, get those things. It's kind of appealing. False teaching is going to be persuasive. Why we need to be vigilant about it. Second, he says even a little bit of false teaching is dangerous. In verse 9, Paul quotes this proverb. It'll make sense to all of you who tried making sourdough bread during the pandemic. But he says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. 
Now, when you're making sourdough, most of you know this, all right, but we'll go over it anyways. Uh, each day or regularly, every couple days, you take out most of the sourdough mix and form it into some kind of loaf or whatever, and you bake that, but you leave a little bit of the sourdough in the jar or the bowl or whatever, and you add a whole bunch more flour and water. And what happens when you add a whole bunch more flour and water? Bread magic, right? Like, you know, somehow that little bit of leaven that you've left in there, that little bit of leftover mix, it, it leavens all the new flour and water. The new flour, the new water, it far outweighs the old leaven, but it doesn't matter. The, the little bit of leaven leavens the whole lump. And in the same way, false teaching, even in small quantities, even if far outweighed by all the good teaching, can cause immense damage particularly when the false teaching attacks a a primary doctrine, a a cardinal doctrine, we have to be careful. Now, if one of you were to come to me and disagree on what kind of songs we should sing in church, I'm normally happy to discuss it, but it doesn't really bother me that much. Christians can disagree about those things, and I'm like, well, that's that's fine, you know, each, each, each to their own. But if you come to me and say, look, I'm just not convinced that, that God is Trinitarian, well, that's much more serious. That, that strikes at the heart of what the Christian God, who he is, how he's, who he's told uh, us that he is. And as a church, we've tried to do our best to say there are many things about which Christians can disagree, and yet we can kind of go to church together. But there are a few things that are extremely essential to Christianity, and we can't agree to disagree on. And if you cannot believe those, these few things, these Apostles' Creed type things, then you can't really be officially part of the church because that's not Christianity anymore. We take this proverb seriously. Even a little bit of leaven of false teaching can be hazardous. Which leads us to the third thing. False teaching is contagious. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. The whole church can get contaminated by this false teaching. Somehow it spreads, you know, like a bad cold. Why does, it, why does bad teaching spread more easily than good teaching? You know, who knows? But because false teaching spreads easily, catches on easily, it must be dealt with cautiously. And interestingly, in Galatians 6, which we'll get to in about two weeks, Paul warns the leaders, you have to be careful when you deal with other people's sin. And he goes on to say, it's easy to be tempted by the sin of others when you get close to it. Somehow proximity uh, to sin and proximity to opponents of the gospel becomes hazardous or can be hazardous to our spiritual health. Fourth, the opponents of the gospel face judgment. If you see this in verse 10, those who trouble the church will bear the penalty. Paul says he's fully confident about this. I'm not sure why he had to add that, but he did. Sometimes when we face false teaching, there's this desire among the church uh, to be vindicated or be proven correct. We want justice for our cause. We want to be seen as just, seen that we got it right. The bad news is that doesn't always happen. Sometimes in hindsight, you do get proven correct, but sometimes false teachers get away with it. You aren't always vindicated for standing up for the truth. But Paul assures us here, the troublers of the faith, they will face the penalty. God is keeping track. God knows everything that's said and done. And the fifth and final thing we learn about opposition to the gospel is that it deals in deceit. If you look at verse 11, Paul seems to be responding to an accusation that he is not preaching the gospel, but preaching circumcision. And you're like, why would that be? He, we have a whole letter in front of us, and he's just fighting against this idea for the whole time. We aren't told. The Galatians would have known. But I bet it was so frustrating to Paul that he's being accused of being on the side of the Judaizers. The opponents of, of the gospel are operating deceitfully. They're making false accusations. So we got five things 
that we learn about these uh, opponents to the gospel. But be, just before we move on to our final section, that we're, the evidence of freedom, we have to talk about verse 12. It's, it's an awkward verse. And I think it's especially awkward if you, if you kind of consider, use your imagination for a moment to think, how would this verse have been taken if it was read, read aloud in the Galatian churches? What kind of tension would have provoked? Would have the room have gone you know, really silent and quiet when that, when that came out? Because Paul says he wishes those who unsettled the Galatians would emasculate themselves. Now, I don't love the ESV translation here. The Greek is less polite. The words underneath, the word underneath emasculate mean to separate by cutting or to cut something off. And so what Paul's doing is he's making this multi-layered comment. It's a play on words. It's a remark about leaving the church alone. And it's also a jab about circumcision. And on one level, Paul is telling them, if you are so excited about circumcision, why don't you go all the way and castrate yourself? Is essentially what he's saying. Just, you want to cut some off? Cut more off. But Paul is also telling the false teachers they should cut themselves off from the church. Stop bothering the church. Separate yourself. It's this play on words, even if it evokes a somewhat impolite image. But you can just see how frustrated, how exasperated Paul is with these opponents of the gospel. He's like, just stop already. Get away. You know, cut yourself off. So by way of application, let me just say this. Sometimes in our desire... For as many people as possible to hear the gospel message, we tolerate many sorts of things. In general, I'm in favor of that. I think that's a good idea. But as a church, we must be vigilant, not about non-Christians interested in the message, you know, doing, doing things, but in Christians who come in and want to alter the gospel message. False teaching, false teachers are not to be tolerated. They're not to be dealt with passively. And they're not even to be ignored. They're to be cut off from the church so their teaching should not spread. Okay, part four, the evidence of freedom. Paul is kind of wrapping up this section. He returns to a similar theme that we found in verse one. Christians are called to freedom. Since Christ has freed you, live as free people. In verse one, Paul warned them, remember, don't lose your freedom. But here he warns them slightly differently. He says, don't abuse your freedom. Freedom should not be used to indulge the flesh, but for service and love. If you look at verse 15, he says slightly differently, if you are free... You can either serve in love or you can bite, devour, and consume each other. It's a pretty stark contrast. And think about the language he is using there. He's saying on one hand, the gospel is supposed to develop this community where everyone cares for each other and there's this sort of mutual serving in love. But sometimes the church can become a place full of uh, uh, wolves where people are biting and devouring and consuming each other. Even amongst people who profess to know and to believe the gospel, we don't always live out the commands of the gospel. Did you know it doesn't always feel good to serve? Often we have rose-colored glasses on when we talk about service and love. It sounds enchanting. I'd love to serve when I've slept well and had a superb morning coffee and my family's in a good place and emotionally I'm kind of top-notch. And then when a church member calls me and needs a ride or someone's kids need to be watched because so someone else is sick or whatever, ah, I'm ready. Uh, it doesn't normally work like that. Service opportunities normally happen when you're already tired, when you've already put on your comfy clothes, when you're already not feeling your best, when more of a- is being asked of you than you really you feel comfortable giving. 
I think lots of us kind of would give lip service and say, yeah, I'm willing to serve when everything's clicking. How do we feel when someone treats us like a servant? It's a lot harder than it seems. And then oppositely, I think we, it's very easy to shake your head about people who'd bite and devour and consume each other. But I were, if I were to bet, most of us are thinking about someone else when we hear that phrase. And we conveniently are not thinking about all the times and we have taken a bite out of someone who crossed us when we devoured because we were having a bad day. I was struck as I read this text this week, thought about it, studied it. The freedom Christ purchased for us is under threat every way you turn. What have we learned so far? It's fragile. It's hard to hold on to. It's under attack from false teaching. It's under attack from the impulses and desires of our own hearts. And I leave this text wondering, how is the church even a thing? How does it even survive? If all these enemies are arrayed against it, if it's surrounded, if the gospel is so hard to hold on to, so slippery, how does the church even exist? How has Resurrection Church, how have we not destroyed ourselves by this point? Well, there's only one reason. It's because Christ sustains the church. If the spirit of the living God, if the power of the resurrected Christ were not on the other side of the equation, then the church would have never made it past the first decade of life. There's just simply too much opposing it. There's too many odds stacked against it. But because Jesus has promised, I will build my church, then no matter what powers or principalities or evil may be stacked against it and may be inside of it, we can still conclude Jesus more than balances the scales. The sustaining power of Jesus in our church and in our hearts, that gives us hope that the church can be more than the sum of its people. The sustaining power of Jesus gives us hope the church can actually be healthier than the average health of its congregants. Because Jesus is here. He's at work. He's leading us into freedom. It's what he made us for. It's what he's trying to deliver to us. So we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And in the process, may God have mercy on us. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful and we are thankful that Christ has come and done what we could not do, paid for our sins, and more than that, fashioned us into a free people. Lord, help us to use our freedom well. Help us to not overindulge our own desires, to not bite, devour, consume. But by your spirit in our hearts, would you sustain us in love and in service towards each other. And we ask all this in Christ's name. Amen.